we're gonna go. to In the Know with Kat Bobino. Today, my extra special guest is Dr. Scott Sampson, the Executive Director at Cal Academy of Sciences. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kat. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Awesome. So um, I know that you took over in 2019, is that correct? Yep. Fall of 2019, just a few months before the bottom fell out of the world. <laughs> yes. Uh Crazy, crazy times. Um, so how are things going at Cal Academy now? Well, they're going great, all considered. I mean, the Academy's been around since 1853, so a hundred and over 167 years. And in that time, the greatest crisis that the Academy ever faced was the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire when the whole museum burned to the ground. And 2019 and 20, we think, is the second biggest crisis the organization's ever faced. And um, I, we went through some very hard times and some really difficult decisions. And I'm thrilled to say that we're coming out of it well. And we have a new strategy and purpose in hand. And we are thrilled about where the future is taking us. Well, that is awesome. Awesome. So... I know you're the executive director now, but before then, what were you doing? How did you get into this role? Wow. Um, well, right before that, I was up in my hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, where I served as the CEO of a, the science museum in that city called Science World. Hmm. And before that, I was at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on their senior team for a while. Um, I started out as a dinosaur paleontologist from the time I was four, if you'd ask me then. And uh, dinosaur was one of the first words I learned how to spell. Uh, <laughs> in fact, there was a time in my life where I could reliably spell the word paleontology and not my last name. Um, so it was definitely something I wanted to do as a kid. I ultimately became a professor at, uh, University of Utah working in, on dinosaurs. Utah is a great state to be in if you're a dinosaur paleontologist, but I left it because I felt like I needed to do things in the world that I could not do studying animals that, uh, died 75 million years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, things about the the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis etc and so i decided to use museum leadership as my vehicle for trying to make a difference in the world and um being at the academy is my dream job oh that's awesome that's that's a lot that you've gone through i mean just to know that you wanted to do work with dinosaurs at four I mean, I think we see kids who play with dinosaurs who are interested in dinosaurs, but they don't always stick the course. What made you stay with that desire? Yeah, most kids grow up and become other things, and I just never did grow up. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think it was my passion for nature that I got as a kid. Um, a lot of it's from my mother, and who, but my family, we used to go camping all the time and all of that, and 
And I, when I realized that I could actually become a scientist and study dinosaurs for a living and travel to far off countries and live in a tent for months at a time and dig up old fossils, I thought, oh my gosh, that's the career I want. And so I did that for many years, um, working in far off places. And, and it was wonderful while I did it. And I would still be doing that if it weren't for these other crisis issues that we're facing right now. Right, right. So making the move from being outside and working with bones and animals that died many years ago to working on crises that we see now, we've unfortunately been a part of for a very long time, but we're seeing more and more of now. How was that transition for you? Well, it, at first I walked away from my unit, my tenured faculty position to nothing, which my colleagues thought was absolutely crazy. Um, yes. But I needed some time to sort of reflect and figure out what I was going to do. And I've been a science communicator my whole adult life. And I started doing more lecturing and more writing. I wrote a book. I wrote a number of articles. I'd done a lot of television because dinosaurs are popular and there's lots mm -hmm. of documentaries. And I was invited to do that. And then I got a call one day from the Jim Henson company who said, hey, would you like to host this kid's show we're going to create? It's called Dinosaur Train. And <laughs> my first reaction was, you can't call it that. And they said, why not? And I said, because we're in the 20, 21st century. You can't go and put dinosaurs on trains like the, the Flintstones or something. <laughs> and, and they said, no, 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 we're not. It's not humans and dinosaurs. We're just going to put dinosaurs on the train. And I stopped and I thought, oh, my gosh, that's just brilliant for like little kids. That's like chocolate and peanut butter putting right. trains together. And so I said, OK, um, we'll do it. And my wife came up with the line that I said at the end of every episode of Dinosaur Train. And there's more than 100 episodes. And that is get outside, get into nature and make your own discoveries. Because I didn't want to create yet another entity that addicted kids to screens and prevented them from going outdoors. And I'm really right. happy to say that the experiment was a success. Dinosaur Train got all kinds of kids interested in nature and going outside. And there were many other spinoff um, programs on PBS and elsewhere that also encouraged kids to go and get connected with nature. So um, that, was a, that was a good bet. Um, but so it was through that television piece that I sort of found my way from academics to making a difference in the world. But then I thought, you know, I do have experience in museums. I've worked in them my whole adult life. Maybe that is a way that I could really um, give back. And so that's what I've decided to do. And um, I guess we'll see eventually whether it worked out or not. Yeah, that that's amazing. I was going to say, uh, have you seen or had experiences where going into the museum has created change? Well, that's a really good question. And, and it's kind of an interesting one. For a long time, museums weren't really about change. Museums mm. sort of thought of themselves as places you go and you take your kids and you go and learn about nature and have fun along the way. And more and more, I think museums are leaning towards the way I and others are seeing it, which is we shouldn't be 
portraying ourselves as places, but rather as purposes. Hmm. And the building becomes one channel through which we deliver on our purpose. And in the, in the case of the academy, our purpose is all about regenerating the natural world. And for us, mm -hmm. that includes people and the rest of nature. You actually can't regenerate the natural world unless you regenerate people at the same time and vice versa. And so that's what we're focused on. And, and it's kind of an exciting change. So I, have I seen museums that, and aquariums and zoos that make a difference in the world? I, I think so, yeah. I think Monterey Bay Aquarium just down mm -hmm. the coast is a good example. They became purpose-based and they became, in a very short period of time, one of the renowned aquariums in the world. And they absolutely portray themselves as a powerful purpose about pr save, protecting and sa uh, saving the oceans. So I think the Academy is in the middle of that transition right now. Well, that's, that's amazing. I, well, obviously haven't been to the Academy since the bottom of the world fell out, but um, I know from my time working at KQED and Deep Look, where all the things that Cal Academy is doing that I don't think the public realizes that they're doing. You know, when you go and visit the museum and you go and you see all the exhibits and all the things like that, and you don't really get a chance to see the background of what's going on and what's like all the work being done for those exhibits. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like what are what is Cal yeah. Academy doing in the background that we may not see as visitors? Well, the most hidden part and the part that we're hoping to put daylight onto and, and allow people to really see happens in the two floors below ground at the Academy. So the Academy is this big, beautiful, largely glass box in Golden Gate Park. And it's covered in a green roof that has over a million native plants on it. Uh, it's one of the most sustainable museums in the world. It was the most sustainable by far when it was built. I mean, mm. the insulation in the building is made of recycled Levi's. And I mean, it's got solar panels all around the rim and on the roof and stuff. It's a remarkable structure designed by the architect architect Renzo Piano, but the part that the public doesn't see in particular is that there's offices in the background on the top uh, three floors, but below ground, there's these two floors that have 46 million objects in storage. And these are natural history objects. So they're everything from cultural artifacts to remains of birds and mammals and insects and plants and 46 million. It's one of the biggest natural history collections on the planet. And these are the records of life on earth. And, mm -hmm. it's the, and our, museums like ours are the only place where we keep these records. And you might wonder, well, who cares? Why keep the records? But they're really important. It's where a lot of the science gets done. Much of the science around biological diversity is not done out in the field. It's done in collections with people comparing specimens of the same thing and comparing them with objects found or specimens found in other places and other museums. And the other piece of this is that when you look out at the world today, you're looking at a shadow of what the living world was even a hundred years ago, let alone 200, 300, a thousand, 
because ecosystems have degraded over time, largely mm -hmm. because of human impacts. So if you're going to understand what a thriving earth is going to look like in the future, you can't just look at the world today. You've got to look back in time at snapshots of the past to see what thriving looked like before humans arrived. And right. while the, there were indigenous peoples here, but the Europeans hadn't arrived, et cetera. And that's what our museums hold is, are these snapshots that we can use to help inform us. So we're going to be bringing those to light, at least to some extent. Soon we're going to open up a new exhibition in May that's going to really be focused on our collections and bring them, bring objects to light that have never been seen. And then we'll rotate um, our objects through there and we'll talk to the public about why we keep these things and how we use them and how they're there to answer questions that haven't even been asked yet. And, and it's pretty fascinating. As a paleontologist, I can tell you I've been to museums all over the world, and I went and worked on fossils that were found 100 years ago. So the people who found them aren't even alive anymore. Right. But the collections they made are now informing the kinds of questions that we're asking today. So the same is going to be true a hundred years from now. And it's one of the reasons we keep these amazing collections. Well, that's amazing. That's awesome <clears throat> that you, you guys have this collection. And I knew about the collection, like I said, from work that I've done before, but the opportunity for the public to see some of the collection, I mean, I, this might be a silly question, but will they be able to touch any of the collections? Yeah, we're going to try and make sure there's some objects that are there that people can touch. Obviously, there right. aren't many objects you can uh, touch. But we also want people to touch, be able to sort of feel and touch the science that's being done. So in addition to those collections, we have 20 full-time science curators, mostly mm -hmm. devoting their work to biological diversity. They, in turn, have undergraduate students and graduate students and postdocs that work with them. We have emeritus curators and other scientists at any one time. There's about 100 scientists actively working in the academy. And all of that science is helping us to better understand the natural world. So many people don't know that the academy is, is engaged in research, for example, in the Maldives, studying coral reefs, mm -hmm. in Madagascar, in the Gulf of Guinea, studying insects and um, amphibians that we are doing research right here in California, looking at fire resilience, for example, and the diversity of plants and animals in cities. So all of this is part of the science that gets done behind the scenes at the Academy. And we know we need to do a better job of bringing that out front so that people understand the work that we're doing. Right. So hopefully, <clears throat> the audience will get a chance to meet the science, the scientists behind it and the science that they're doing and get a better understanding. Because even with talking about the biodiversity and the history, a lot of people don't realize the difference between a paleontologist, an archaeologist, a geologist, who all might study the past, but they're studying different aspects of the past. And so we'll, how do you feel about the idea of different realms of science and scientists sharing their knowledge, but 
also taking into account that there's different parts of the science who are studying different things, but people group it together. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it reflects a major trend that we're seeing in science right now. Through most of the 20th century, the ologies were pretty well defined, whether it's geology, paleontology, um, biology, etc., Then there was this explosion late in the 20th century, particularly around in the biological sciences with genetics and then molecular genetics and Mm -hmm. then all these subdivisions. And then what we started to see very late in the 20th century is a crossover between entire disciplines. Mm -hmm. So we started to see major crossover between the geological sciences and the biological sciences. And that's where paleontology fits right in the middle of those. But we started to look, people started to look at, for example, the relationship between climate and biology. And they asked questions that had never been asked before. And there was a fellow named, for example, named James Lovelock, who came up with this idea that the entire planet is akin to a living organism in the sense that, called the Gaia hypothesis, in the sense that over time, Earth has controlled the the temperature of the atmosphere to keep it within the realms that is stable for life. And there's been all these feedback loops operating in systems at different levels within the biosphere that overall have maintained the biosphere at a relatively consistent temperature, et cetera, so that life can persist. And we wouldn't even understand that unless we started to cross over the atmospheric sciences and the biologic sciences, for example. And so many of the most important and impactful contributions, I think, being made in science are at these intersections between great disciplines. And we need more of that going forward. That's that's an awesome theory, idea of what's going on. I mean, we are taught that um, we have the herbivores who's eaten by the carnivores who who are then die off and then regurgitated with fungi and, you know, all that stuff. So it's just that circle of life that we have, but to put it on a grander scale of the earth and the earth is doing all that it's supposed to do to maintain life. And except for the only organism who don't get it, apparently, is humans. And it's true. No, and Kat, this is one of the most important points, is that we don't understand how nature works on a broad enough scale to align with how the world works. We, for example, think that we can have infinite economic growth on a finite planet, which makes no sense at all. Right. And and mo- for most of human history, humans actually did align their behaviors with the natural world mm-hmm. and allowed nature to thrive while they thrived. Right. But particularly with the scientific revolution and colonialism coming out of Europe, we started to treat the planet like a yeah, like a big box store full of resources that we could just go use up whenever we wanted. And what we're seeing now is that we're reaching limits. Right. Um, CO2 in the atmosphere, um, um, 
destruction of species that are pulling apart the web of life, um, a lot of pollutants in the atmosphere, etc. So we're starting to realize that we can't just treat the atmosphere and the biosphere as our garbage dump and our resource right. at the same time. We have to learn how to operate in alignment with this system. And it's a big lesson because it's a shift in worldview. It takes us from being outside and above nature where we sort of use it as we see fit to seeing ourselves as members and part of the natural world and partnering with them to create this thriving future that we know we can have. Right. And I've seen it where there are some scientists now who are getting recognition for the work they're doing with indigenous people because indigenous people throughout the world are the ones who more were more aligned with nature and the things that they did with cultivating their food and, and how many animals they kill or how much they do was all about how we give back to the earth that's providing for us. Then yeah. what happened, what you said with colonism and, and and they came in and it was like, well, we don't care about what you're doing. We're going to do it our way. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's this mutual reciprocity thing that indigenous peoples around the world adhere to. And they, of course, have knowledge that goes back thousands of years, what is sometimes called traditional ecological knowledge about how a place works and what it looks like and feels like when it's thriving. And now for the first time, really just in the 21st century, we've seen the merging of traditional ecological knowledge and Western science to answer questions about what kind of interventions we should be making right. to make places healthier. And it's exciting. It's a really exciting area that I think is just ripe for innovation um, that can help us move forward. So we need to, I mean, it's an amazing fact that of the most biologically diverse places in the world today, about 85% of those places um, are in control or at least partially in control of indigenous peoples. And that's not an accident. It's because right. they are much better at protecting those places than not indigenous people are. And if we can learn from them about how best to do this, we are going to be able to help regenerate the living world and ourselves at the same time and do it within a framework of social justice. Right. Well, I mean, that is, I hope that that is what's coming down the pipeline. I mean, I know that there are people who believe in it and push it, but getting the non-believers are the people who may not have the academic education to listen you know, that that is the biggest platform. <laughs> well, and so it's one of the reasons why I do what I do, because when you look at museums and aquariums and zoos, um, botanical gardens, all these science-based institutions that deal with nature, we see more people every year by far than all professional sporting events combined which is a pretty remarkable statistic. Now imagine if the bulk of those science institutions could align on a powerful vision of the future 
that embeds people within nature and allows us to, to act on behalf of our local place and gave us opportunities to do that. That could be a powerful catalyst for meaningful change. And so I'm in the midst right now of talking with a number of leaders of some of these science-based cultural institutions and thinking about, can we come together? Can we align and really do something important? That sounds like um, a lot of the large institutions doing more citizen science and bringing in the citizens to what is happening and getting them involved by saying, hey, this is what we're thinking. We want to do this. We're going to put it on your plate to do it, though, because you're the citizen scientist behind it. Yeah, and it's, I'm proud to say that's one of the areas where the academy is a true world leader. What's sometimes called citizen science, what's other times called community science, we, by, we mean the same thing by it. But it's really getting people involved in doing the actual science to understand usually their local place. Sometimes citizen mm -hmm. science can be done with astronomy and looking up in the night sky. But we, in particular, focus on our own places. And the, um, the Academy has this app called iNaturalist mm -hmm. and the, its home is at the Academy and it's the most used citizen science or community science nature app in, in the world now. And we're looking to really scale that app moving forward. And it's remarkable. If you haven't seen it, I recommend to all the people who are looking in here, check it out. If you download the app, it's free. Mm -hmm. You can take a photograph with your phone of any plant or any animal, upload it, and there's an AI that will help identify it. And in addition, there's a group of scientists that will verify the observation. Once an observation is verified, it goes to a large database, which is then used by scientists to research things like how is climate change affecting the onset of plants budding in the spring or the migration of birds or whatever that might be, because people are documenting the occurrence of all these plants and animals. Invasive species, a huge problem today. Community scientists or citizen scientists, because they're photographing things all the time and uploading the data, they're likely to be the first people to discover an invasive species, and then we can act to deal with it. So or monitoring change over time. If things start to regenerate and improve, you gotta be able to measure that. And so this, these kinds of citizen science are really key to us moving forward, I think. Well, that's amazing, yeah. I think that it, um, getting the public involved and getting them, uh, having them have a better understanding of what's going on gets them more concerned, get them more talking about how we can be the change and it's like getting the getting everyone a seat at the table, so to speak. So I think that's really cool. I think that's amazing what's going on at Cal Academy and the work that you're doing there. Yeah, well, and I'll add one last element to it because it relates to exactly what you just said. Traditionally, museums, we do two things. We do science, we do education. We've got divisions devoted to this, all kinds of stuff. All good. Traditionally, the information flowed one way, from our institutions to the outside world. Right. And now we realize that is not enough. The vectors have to go both ways. 
We need to listen to our communities. We need to engage our communities. We need to host convenings with our communities. And in fact, the big questions of the world are not questions that we can answer. They're only gonna be answered by crowdsourcing um, with expert stakeholders and the community at large. So think for example about the San Francisco Bay Area where we mm -hmm. are. If, if we wanted, let's just say you and I were gonna start a project and we said, okay, we're gonna create a project for San Francisco Bay 2050. What does it look like if it's thriving? To, on our own, we could never answer that because right. the answer includes understanding trends in climate, in economics, in social justice, in ecology and biological diversity, all the conservation, all these different elements, you've got to bring them together. And so we've been thinking, okay, how could the academy embrace not just the science and the education, but this third sphere of collaboration? Mm -hmm. And so we're developing that sphere. We want to be that place for convening, et cetera. And so we think that could be transformative and and we're excited to experiment in the Bay Area to make that happen. That would be really, that'd be really cool. And I know um, <clears throat> I knew the previous executive director of Cal Academy. And one of the biggest things was getting more students from outside of San Francisco and more families from outside of San Francisco to come to Cal Academy. For example, Oakland, you know, there was not a lot of families coming from Oakland to go to Cal Academy and not a lot of diversity from the outside areas going to Cal Academy. We're with COVID and the virtual things that we got going on. Um, how do you see the future for Cal Academy when it comes to the surrounding cities and surrounding families more access? Yeah, it's a really good question. And my experience with museums has taught me clearly that if you're looking in particular to diversify your audience, you can't just expect them to come to you. Um, right. Oftentimes, um, at-risk communities, communities of color, they don't have experience with you. They don't even know what to do when they get to your place because they've never, never done that before. And they don't necessarily even trust you in terms of what you're going to do when they get there. Right. And so part of it is building the relationships. And that means going out to the communities rather than expecting them to come to you and having discussions about, well, what are your challenges right now? How might we apply our assets to try and address some of your challenges, whether that's environmental justice or education, whatever it might be, because we do have a lot of assets that we can bring to bear. And then if we can partner on things, now we can start getting champions, people coming, school groups coming. Now that's, we can start to make real difference. Having right. said that, I will say that we, we have had a, an amazing gift from a generous donor, um, uh, Mr. Rock, we have something called the Rock Fund that pays for students, every student in San Francisco to come and visit the academy for free. And we're looking to extend that beyond San Francisco to the entire Bay Area. And mm -hmm. we would need additional support to make that happen. But, but that can be really powerful too. And we've seen this before. If you can get kids 
coming to visit as part of school groups, et cetera. And if you can augment that by giving them tickets so they can bring their families back for free, right now you're starting to get more people exposed to the academy and understanding what we do and how it can be a benefit to them. So I think it's things like that that we're looking to do. Another great example is free passes in libraries where mm -hmm. you go with your library card to your local library and you use it to take out a family pass to go to the academy. And now you can come and you're not worrying about the cost and, and you, you can come and enjoy the whole place. So equity is a huge and, and accessibility are both mm -hmm. huge elements to go with diversity and inclusion. Um, in, in our efforts. So we're very focused right now on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. It's both internally and externally. It's a major function of what we do. Um, and we don't believe we can be successful unless we're successful in the realm of life on earth, unless we also embrace social justice as a key goal of what we're doing. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. I mean, <clears throat> giving the access, you know, sometimes it's paying for to go to a museum, but you know, outside of San Francisco, it's getting to Golden Gate area as well as access to the museum. So at least taking one of those off and giving that an opportunity for students and their families to come. I think it's a good idea. I think it's great that that's something you guys are working towards. I, I hope that it, it comes to fruition, you know, with expanding to other parts of the Bay, you know, I think that students would get a great uh, chance to see the amazing things that's happening at Cal Academy. Cause I've been there. It's humongous and it's fun for me. And I only have a one-year-old, so he doesn't care, but you know, eventually I want to take him there and hopefully right. get excited. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and the admission is only, Part of the problem, as you mentioned, transportation is the other part. And we look to fund the transportation for the kids in San Francisco. And so if we could expand the program, we'd want to do the so we can take care of the busing and all of that as well. It's a, it's a big deal. And it's not cheap. No, it's not. You know, and as for me, if someone I can either drive, which means I'm going to pay the toll and pay for parking, possibly. Or I can take public transportation, which means BART and Muni. So like that. And for some people, bus. Bus, BART, and Muni, which could be a lot. So, yeah. yeah. I totally understand. I totally get that. So I'm, with COVID, what are some of the things you guys are doing for access for people to get to, to see what's going on at Cal Academy? Maybe not come, per se, but see what's going on at Cal. Well, no. The people are coming. We are wide open. Um we are, we've made a lower ceiling on the numbers of people we'll have in the building at any one time, just so we can maintain social distancing. We are asking that um, people be vaccinated. Um, in fact, triple vaccinated now. Uh, and, and we are enjoying lots and lots of visitors. And boy, people have... Um, <laughs> have been missing being able to come to places like the Academy and over Christmas, which are some of our busiest time of the year, the holiday season, we saw a lot of people and people were booking in advance to make sure that they could come in the door. And we have, you know, stations, hand-washing stations. We've got mm -hmm. staff on hand to keep people socially distanced. Everyone needs to wear a mask. And so we've taken all kinds of steps 
to make the experience safe for families to come. Uh, and, and we're thrilled that they are coming back and enjoying all of the things we have at the Academy. In fact, we just opened a brand new outdoor exhibition focused on nature play. It's called Wander Woods. We have a garden on each side of the um, building in the Academy that's fenced in. And on the east side, in what we call our east garden, we've opened up Wander Woods, which is a nature play area, mm. which is great. And, and we have a bit of an epidemic going on in this country that most people don't realize. There's been this indoor migration over the past generation, such that the majority of kids today are living inside kind of under effective house arrest that right. like when I grew up, it was all about being outdoors. My mother kicked me out and locked the door behind me. I think <laughs> after I left nowadays, it just doesn't happen. The average kid today spends less than 10 minutes a day playing outdoors, which is 90% less than their parents and grandparents had. And the result of that, is skyrocketing rates of obesity, attention deficit disorder, diabetes, depression, even conditions like myopia. And kids aren't getting the socialization that they need and all of that. And so we're using this nature play space at the academy as an exemplar of how you can do this kind of outdoor engagement, including in schoolyards. So teachers, can use schoolyards not just as a place to go play, right. but as a place to teach, whether that's science or geography or history or whatever it might be, the schoolyard can be a really good place to do it. And place-based, nature-based learning is a powerful way to engage kids in learning all kinds of things. So that's what we're hoping for Wanderwoods, and it's it's off to a good start. We had a great launch a few weeks ago, and well, the kids are loving it. So that's terrific. What's the what's the age range for Wonderwood? Oh, I I think pretty much from birth to death, you name it. Um, <laughs> you know, but so it's kids kids of any age is the point. But yeah. realist, realistically, the kids who enjoy it most are in that sort of two to seven range. But there's lots of kids on either side of that that are there right. with and everything. In fact, the first week that we opened, kids started climbing up on things that we didn't think they'd be able to <laughs> climb. And they were getting up to like 15 feet and we had to go, whoa, okay, that change up. <laughs> so we had to change how we staffed it and how the place looked and fencing and everything. So kids are amazing and mm -hmm. they just want to get out there and have a good time. And we're trying to allow them to do that. Oh, yeah, that's one of the, the main things um, when I worked on my master's and talked about, I talked about um, little kids, especially like kindergarten age, you know, you ask them what they want to do and they might say, I want to work on the moon and work with dinosaurs. And, you know, it's unfortunately adults, parents and teachers sometimes who's like, well, no, you can't do that. So you have to choose something else or something realistic. And for me, I don't want that. I want you know, there's a lot of people who will say we don't want to kill that curiosity in kids. You say not you can't do it. Instead, how are you going to do it? Show me how you're going to work on dinosaurs on the moon. And you give you make them or you hopefully get them to still stay curious and to try to figure out the problem instead of telling them, no, you can't. Yeah. And it turns out that one of the most powerful ways to engage kids is in 
experiential learning. If they're doing while they're learning, they are way more likely to not only get engaged, but stay engaged. And so right. if you can take that outdoors and now they're learning outside, it doesn't even feel like education at that point. They're just having fun while they're pulling in all these things. And so um, it's a big, but it's a skill set. And most teachers haven't learned that skill set. And so we are going to be using our Wanderwoods exhibit in, in part to help do professional development for teachers so that they can get a sense of confidence using schoolyards and other places for education. Yeah, I think teachers is a whole nother rabbit hole that we can't go down because of the lack of teachers and the lack of support that they are getting, unfortunately. But yes, giving them more opportunities and more hands-on projects, I think is a great way for kids to learn and to be future scientists that cross over, so to speak. Yeah, you know, one, of, one of the my biggest things is the reason why I do the podcast is because I feel like the public, the youth, the parents and their kids don't understand the different ideas and pro and jobs that can come from STEM. You know, and they we go into school and we are taught these different ologies, as you say, but we're not taught the underlying disciplines that fall under them. So, you know, you think of chemistry, you think, oh, I'm only going to be inside working with chemicals, blowing things up. But that's not true. There's geochemistry and biochemistry and all these different chemistries that you can do the work. And, you know, you might work at a museum or in the field or in a lab or even do your own thing and make chemistry and tech work together. Who knows? But yeah. we there's a lot of people who there's a lot of people in the public who don't understand the different jobs and opportunities that fall under STEM. Well, and, and, and the trends are dramatic uh, towards STEM jobs. There is a lot of um, prediction now that by even as early as 2050, up to 80% of jobs will be STEM related jobs. Mm. I mean, it's just staggering. And so youth who don't have that STEM training are going to be at extreme disadvantage. And kids from at-risk communities of color are at greater disadvantage because often they don't have high-quality STEM learning. And this is especially true in elementary schools because high schools often have science. They typically have science teachers who specialize in those areas of science, right? But in right. elementary school... They don't. And most elementary school teachers don't have the depth of science knowledge to feel comfortable teaching it. And it's even more so in many of these at risk, like Title I schools, et cetera. And so it's really important to be able to augment the training that teachers have had so that they can feel confident. So these kids don't get off to a disadvantage where they're behind right from day one and, and therefore never really get a chance to catch up. Right. I, and I've seen it. I'm from Oakland, California. I've seen a lot of um, things happen or, I mean, even to this day, you know, when I tell people that I'm a biologist, when I used to go out into the world when the world was open, you know, um, I can go around Oakland and say some of the things I've done or the animals I've worked with or the people I've met. 
And oftentimes I've heard, I've never met a black scientist. And it's very sad that that's something that I've gotten to this day, that you're an adult older than me, but you've never met a black scientist. And, you know, I've gone and spoke with students in classrooms and I've had people say, don't tell them what you do. I'm going to see what, if they can figure it out. What do you do? Oh, you know, you work in sales, you are a work in fashion or, you know, these typical jobs that they see. And I'm like, "Mm, no, you know, I've worked in a field and I've worked with animals and I'm a biologist and it's sad and yet astonishing that they don't see that. Yeah. And so part of the big challenge that you just spoke of there is that we literally need to change the face of science. So too much of science looks like people like me and more of science needs to look like people like you. And and so we're excited to be engaged in that work. So we do training um, every year with undergraduate students um, and we preferentially look for diverse students that can come in um, and students often from uh, at-risk backgrounds who we want to give an opportunity to who w- wouldn't necessarily get those opportunities and kids like who are the first in their family to go to college and all of that so that when we go out to these communities, they can be there with us. And now the kids are seeing young scientists who look like them. And they right. go, wow, I never knew I could do that. I never considered that. I wanted to be a, you know, a musician or an actor or whatever, but I didn't know that I could make money and have an amazing career being a scientist. And now I do because I met this really cool woman who does this biology work. And so right. that's the kind of thing that we're really looking to scale up uh, in what we're doing at the Academy. And it's, it's exciting because you see the results immediately. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's been my biggest uphill battle with, cause I mean, I, I've seen your, uh, dinosaur trains and, you know, I've seen a lot of shows of that nature. And that's something that I've always wanted to be a part of is doing television and getting, you know, being a face of science, but, we don't see diversity on television still when it comes to STEM, you know? So that's always going to be my push and my battle for that. But I know we're running out of time and I know you are a very busy person. So I want to say thank you again for taking the time to be a part of the show. And is there any one last things or anything you want to share before we go? No, just... Kat, I want to say thank you. Um, The kind of work you're doing, even with this podcast, I know that you're thinking about the television and that's great. And I'm hoping you get opportunities to do that. But this kind of work is really important because you're out there showing people a different, different look on science, a different approach to science, a different way of thinking about it. And that's important too. So congratulations on all of your success. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. And hopefully I will see you again soon. Wait, maybe when I bring my son to Cal Academy. <laughs> and Good. he runs the muck and pushes everything over. And I apologize in advance. 
I hope I get a chance to meet him. <laughs> All right. All Have right. a good rest of your Wednesday. You take good care, Kat. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, everyone, for those who tuned in. Got a chance to chat with the CEO of Cal Academy of Science. Um, hey, Patricia, I see you. Thanks for the share. Where, make sure you stay tuned in. Um, there's a lot going on in my world, but I hope to keep this podcast going. So, uh, yeah, thank you guys for joining in. And you guys have a great rest of your Wednesday as well. <laughs>